0: I want to thank our sponsor, Planet Ford. Planet Ford has always been a proud supporter of law enforcement, and the community, providing customer service and fleet management, sales, and service. If you're looking for that personal quality service, contact Planet Ford in Spring or online at planetford.com. You're listening to Crime Scene today. I'm your host, Dan Zintek, where we talk about current and future issues facing crime scene forensics and law enforcement investigations uh, today i have eugene Liceo, uh, who is from canada and deals specifically in uh, research and 3d uh, forensics and so he's done some amazing uh, research on those topics and and continues to do some uh, amazing things uh, with that and to look at his products and all it uh, we have a lot of questions there's a lot of people that after looking at his stuff want to know you know how do you do that what equipment do i need what benefit is this in crime scene so so uh you know we just had uh, an opportunity to reach out uh he presented it at, at acer if you didn't get a chance um, to go to acer this year the uh, association of crime scene reconstructionist uh, please look that up, look online. And there's just some great people there and just some great things that they're doing, uh, for our field and forensics. And so we, uh, look forward to next year's conference and, and what happens along the way. So, uh, Eugene, thank you so much for, for coming in today. Well, thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Thank you. So I'll tell you one thing I want to sort of jump in and start with, uh, I looked at, uh, your LinkedIn page and you had posted a couple of different, um, 3d images. That uh, we're zooming in, and I, I'm not sure if you're using drone, if you're using uh, a different video process, if you're using Leica, Pharaoh, those type of scan things. But so one was a, a building, and then it zoomed into what uh, I guess to me would be a penny on the ground, and and had clarity all the way through mm-hmm. uh, during it. So so uh, I guess explain what that is, what's the process, what what are we looking at there?
1: Yeah, those, the most recent ones that I had posted, those were both photogrammetry projects. So I'm actually using just software and then photographs. So there were, there were two purposes for each of those. And uh, it really came about from people who were asking a lot of questions regarding, can you, for example, mix cameras when you're using photogrammetry? And so for those of you that don't know, photogrammetry is where you take, you know, a lot of photos and then you put these photos into a software package and then it spits out a 3D model. So uh, kind of on a very quick way. Um, So what I wanted to do was show people that you can, in fact, mix cameras. So the project of the building that you mentioned that kind of zooms out, that was just using a uh, a Nikon digital camera. I had uh, uh, two different lenses on there. One is a zooming lens, so I had two different settings there. I had a point-and-shoot camera. I had an iPhone, and I had a Samsung phone. And so I, I took all these images, threw them in, and I wanted to show people that uh, one big benefit of photogrammetry is that it doesn't have a fixed scale. Like a you know, if you have a laser scanner, a manufacturer will tell you that it's you know it's good down to you know an eighth of an inch or something like that. And so uh, what I did was I combined all this stuff and I put a little. It was a, a one penny. It was a euro, a one cent euro that I, I threw on the ground, and then I zoomed out from far and showed how you can come in. From a w- very wide sort of shot far away and how you can come in very close to uh, get a lot a lot of detail if you want and that's one of the i think the advantages of of using photogrammetry and it's all in one project and um uh processed all together in in one shot which was great
0: the- now you said you used numerous cameras and you you talked about some of them so so how many photos are we talking about i mean from like beginning to end what what are we looking at
1: uh i think that might have had about a hundred i think if i I remember correctly it was like 150 photos something like that so it was about 20-ish from each camera so you know it wasn't uh i'll be honest with you i wasn't really i was surprised at the reaction i got online so i I didn't think it was um i mean i I thought it was cool or whatever so i just kind of put it on but it actually got a lot more attention than i thought so um yeah you know it wasn't uh if i had known i would have actually gotten closer so i could really <laughs> zoom in you would have done more <laughs> yeah i would have
0: done more so uh you know well, and i other... think the big question is that i mean so obviously 150 photos that's it's not that you took a quick one camera one shot and all of a sudden had all this great detail from from wide to zoom it there, there's a process you know sort of like uh, hdr photography is blending different lighting elements this is obviously blending um you know different focal lengths and and things of that nature so uh and you talked about dumping it in so i i i, I know very little about the photogrammetry i mean i've, I've dealt in the hdr stuff of using photomatics and hdr mm-hmm. stuff so what programs are you using in, in photogrammetry when you say dump this in Right. So the, in
1: that particular instance, I used a program called 3DF Zephyr, and the company is called 3D Flow. So it's an Italian company, and they have a really great product. But I do use other photogrammetry software. So there's another one from a company called Agisoft, which the, uh, the product is called Metashape. There's another one that I really like. I use a lot for my forensics work, which is called PhotoModeler. And it's a very comprehensive photogrammetry package that does more than just sort of creating 3D models Um, the the nice part about the 3df zephyr is that they have a free version so if you just want to try it out or give it a shot um, and that's what got me interested originally they had a you know you can load up to 50 photos and then process them and come up with a 3D model and there's some restrictions you don't have everything but it was really great you could do quite a bit with very very little so you know most people have a camera or they have a phone and Take some shots and then you know process them through the 3df sever software and you're, you can be really impressed uh with with what you can with what you
0: can create yeah so obviously we you know um we broadcast uh, all over the world and uh there are departments that have plenty of money uh, i shouldn't say plenty no one has enough to accomplish things right but but and then they're very small departments so what type of financial investment to accomplish um i guess the basic uh, image the to, to do that
1: well if if you are somewhat spirited then there are actually free options okay so if you want to get in and try some some free stuff there are other programs out there that will actually develop a point cloud uh, there's one called visual sf or, uh, visual sfm structure from motion um, there's another one called um, Meshroom. That's a popular one that a lot of people are, are working with right now. Uh, the 3DF Zephyr one is another one that I said has allows for 50 photos free. But in terms of cost, some of the companies have sort of a graduated pricing. So if you just want to, um, so for example, 3DF Zephyr has a, uh, their standard version is less than $200 US. I think it's uh, maybe it's like one sixty or one seventy euros or something. So it's about two hundred bucks, let's say, and that will allow you to process up to five hundred photos, which for most projects is absolutely fine. It's it's plenty of photos, and it doesn't matter like if you're flying a drone, if you are you know just using your your Nikon camera or Canon or you know phone like whatever it is, including video. So often you can you can process video as well. So, you know, um, I believe uh, Metashape from Agisoft has uh, also has a version that's like a couple hundred bucks. And then if you really want every feature and you want to spend the big bucks, uh, you can get up to, you know, several thousand dollars. So we're talking about, let's just say you're somewhere in the $5,000 range, uh, $4,000, $5,000 range for, for software. And, you know, aside from all the other maintenance and other things. So it's. It's not that bad when you consider, you know, a laser scanner. Um, if you buy a, a, a you know, a, a full-fledged laser scanner, comparatively, it's uh, the laser scanners can be quite expensive, right? They're great instruments. Don't get me wrong. They, they, they do incredible things. Um, but of course, um, they're great tools because they also work together. Right. Right. so that's that's the other thing so, so um, you'll see often people online they'll they'll do this thing where they want to pitch one against the other and I, right. I always say that it's just for marketing purposes they just want to say you know laser scanning versus photogrammetry right. um, but the truth is that they, they work very very well together and uh, you know it, we can imagine a scenario for example you get to a crime scene and there's a body on the ground and you know body body may be the first thing to get out of there so grab your camera, you know, click, 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 you know, in 30 seconds, you've got enough photos that you can create that, uh, body model again. And then afterwards, you know, you come in with a laser scanner, you collect the, the data for the house or the apartment or whatever it might be, but, and you can always put the, uh, the body back in place where it was before. So, and
0: so, I mean, that brings the big question, right. And I mean, you've sort of touched on it, but to expound is the why, right? Why do this? I mean, obviously we're talking about crime scenes, we're talking about forensics, so what, you know, we're always looking at new technologies and things that, that help us. So so why 3D? Why the scanners? Why the photogrammetry? What what benefit to the investigators, to the courts? What? Why are we doing all this?
1: Yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, with respect to a lot of the newer 3D technologies, when people Often when people see the product, so they'll see the model or the scan, you know, there's like a wow factor. like oh Sure, it looks cool. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it looks cool, right? But I always say, you know, cool doesn't sell, right? So cool is great, but, you know, if it's just cool to look at, well, that doesn't have a lot of utility always, right? So for me, um, I think there's a few things. So the first one is the speed of documentation. And so if you take... If you took if you had a crime scene that was in an apartment and you know it's a wide open kitchen and there's nothing around it's beautifully tiled floor that's easy so you can pull out your tape measure and you could probably accomplish you know a, a quick sketch or a quick you know scene diagram whatever without too much effort but now let's take that scenario and let's shift it to a uh, a forested area on the side of a hill or something like that well all of a sudden hand mapping doesn't cut it anymore and you run into all sorts of problems so um inside of vehicles, for example, it becomes very problematic to try and document things uh, properly. And of course, the the digital camera is is fantastic because you can take photos, but when you're talking about trying to get measurements, um, you can now leverage the digital camera for the photogrammetry. Um, You can have a hand scanner, for example, where You know, you scan by hand, uh, you know, the interior of a car or a body on the ground and you can have the the terrestrial laser scanner that would be great for large outdoor scenes, crashes and all that sort of thing. So speed for sure. There's no, for example, with the laser scanner, there's no other instrument in the world that's going to document as fast and as much data. There's just there's nothing else in existence.
0: Now, there's been a lot of advances on the laser scanners, but I remember in the beginning, when I say beginning, I think we had gotten uh, a Leica 360 back in 2013. And one of the issues we had then, and I know it's improved, but one of the issues we had then was linking scenes together. Like you talked about the kitchen that's wide open, but what about the hallway we need to go down that the other bodies in the bedroom and linking those together? How, I guess, uh, Where are we at with that? How how easy is that to do now? There
1: are some, you know, there's just some basic principles that you're never going to get around from. And so, you know, you can think of a scan as like a piece of a puzzle, right? And if you have uh, one piece of of the puzzle, that shape that it has has to fit with another piece of the puzzle with a similar shape or similar geometry. So, um, you know, you have to be able to link these together. You can't just kind of like, you know, Take one of the kitchen inside, and then walk out to the street and do one there, and then all of a sudden go to the basement and take another one. That's not really what it's intended. So, um, you could say one of the weak points of something like the laser scanner is that they have to be generally sequential. Like they they like a very structured and organized manner in which you scan, and then it, then it'll piece everything together, you know, from top to bottom. But um, the algorithms that are used today are much improved over you know ten years ago. Let's say. So people were using targets before, a lot more. And targets can sometimes still be used, and sometimes they're necessary, and that's just because of the, the geometry and the way that the algorithms work. They break down under certain situations. So very, very much improved, very robust. Um, sometimes I'm actually surprised. I'm just like, wow, this thing came in, you know, came together really, really, really well. And, um, but it's, they're certainly made so they make your life easier these days.
0: And I know that one of the, I guess, selling points, even even in the beginning, was that, so we're capturing the scene, that if there's something we didn't measure in the first place, we can go back and measure it later. Uh, I think something that we've seen uh, that's been added uh, that we didn't have back then and, and in recent years is drone technology, yeah. right, and us and us putting the cameras on the drones. Um, what's been your experience with that and, um, I guess, the, the advantages of us being able to put that in our technology?
1: Right. Well, again, you know, with the drone, so photogrammetry itself is not anything new. So when the first camera was made in the 1850s, it wasn't much after that. It was a few years after that where there was a a Frenchman named uh, Aimé Locedat. And he said, hey, I think I can use this camera for uh, surveying. So photogrammetry had very, very early roots. And um, so it's been developed. You know, I got into photogrammetry in 2006. And so drones actually helped photogrammetry it sort of gave it a real kick in the pants because it wasn't that you couldn't do it before it's just everybody has a drone and it's so easy to fly and you can get the camera to a position which is super you know fantastic you get a great shot so for outdoor scenes the speed at which you can document the you know a crash scene or a large section of roadway of buildings or whatever is just fantastic. I mean, uh, within a a 10 minute flight, the drone, it doesn't sound like a lot, you know, five or 10 minutes, but you can document one heck of a lot of area in, in 10 minutes. So that is a huge plus for crime scene investigators and for people that are doing accident reconstruction.
0: Yeah. My understanding is that, um, at least whether there's programs, maybe it's, maybe it's built into the drone, but there's certain programs that I guess you can set up where it, obviously we we all know they take video, but there's a way that it'll like take so many photos in a, in a track or, uh, that type of thing.
1: Right. So yeah. Photogrammetry packages, like when you have a lot of overlap over the photos, so you fly the drone and then you kind of, you know, get like 70, 80% overlap or, and then kind of go from there. So there are programs you can get little apps where, um, you can say, you just drag a rectangle around a map like a google maps type of thing you say well i want to photograph this whole area and you know i want a certain amount of overlap between the photos and it just goes and flies the mission for you right which is uh which is pretty cool and uh in fact i think uh i thought it was uh montgomery uh, county that had uh had a a drone uh, a long time ago actually uh we did we
0: were one of the one of the first people to have a drone and uh, I'm trying to
1: remember his last name dale is it dale uh oh, geez I, I i don't remember I, i'm trying to remember his name but it, there was a demonstration that uh, i saw out there and you know the first time no, I saw. Uh, it.
0: let's see probably damon hall damon hall that's it yes. sorry yeah damon, damon hall. hall um i i think we should have waited but uh and, and all <laughs> we, we got in and, and it was one of the i mean don't get me wrong i brag all the time that uh uh, the Montgomery County Sheriff's Department, um, certainly back then, uh, if there was technology we needed to do our job, uh, that, that sheriff at the time, which was Tommy Gage, would mm-hmm. uh, would give us that technology. That's how we got our, our Leica 360 scanner in 2013. When I won't say they were coming out, but they were certainly way more expensive than they are now. Oh, and yeah. we got that and, and we got the drone. But the drone we got at that time looked like a helicopter it didn't look like like the the quadcopters that we see now it it looked like a miniature helicopter and to fly this required like a a flight station out of the back of a tahoe i remember Uh, that i saw it i remember it (laughs) so it's i said i wanted to say early early um phases and and now you have drones that can do way more than that one could at you know one-tenth of the cost of, of what we were dealing with then. So yeah. uh, we still have drones as part of it, but, uh, yeah, we, we were early on on that. Um, that one died a, a horrible death, uh, by going into, into a lake. And, uh, okay. so, uh, we, we recovered that and stuff, but anyway, that's, that's a story for another time, but yes, we, we, we were early on with the drone, but we weren't, um, we were still experimenting, uh, with, using the uh, dslr on the drone and and i i want to say it was sort of experimental just in the fact of different softwares and things that we were trying mm-hmm. to use and such and i think that's come a long way um i've heard of one software i've not used it but i've I've heard it to where i nearly believe it's sort of a standard with some people was pix 4d yep okay so yeah. Um, so I don't, I, don't use,
1: I, I don't use Pix4D, and it's only because... So Pix4D kind of came in uh, a little bit later for me. Uh, so I was already using different software. But I would recommend Pix4D. So if you're flying a drone, and you're going to be doing a lot of drone missions and stuff like that, like Pix4D, is they, they did a really great job of supporting that, that industry, the public safety industry, you know, market or industry. And um, they've made it, they, they've placed a lot of integration with software and other apps and things like that. So, yeah, Pix4D is definitely a big name. And, um, you know, they jumped on the drone bandwagon when it was early on and they did really well for themselves.
0: So, I mean, and I understand uh, your education level is higher than most, but how easy is this software to use for? for the average CSI, for the average person that's taken some photos. And I know you say just dump them in, but obviously there's, there's probably a lot more than just dump them in, and we have this awesome thing.
1: So I, yeah, this is what I always tell. So I just finished a class. So the Tuesday and Wednesday I taught another class. And, uh, so I had about eh, maybe about 50% of the people there were like accident reconstruction forensics type people. And uh, you know, by the time they're done after, you know, once they get about 10, 12 hours, they are, they are pumping out 3D models. So the issue becomes not so much can you create a model, it's whether you can create a good model, whether you can have it scaled properly, whether you can recover from something that isn't working for you, like how do you, how do you go back and fix something afterwards, right? So it's all these other little things, or there's a, and there's a lot of advanced methods that you have to use, like if you wanna integrate with laser scanner data, uh, if you want to use ground control points so it, it kind of it kind of escalates but you know just the basics being able to fly you know a drone take the proper images and knowing how to do that manually without a lot of um, input or a lot of automation is not that difficult you can you can definitely do that with a very very short course yeah. and a lot of the software that I'm talking to you about is is fairly simple to use
0: so now as far as the um a lot of the things that we use the, the 3D4 for is for reconstruction, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, how does this work in inserting models on top of? So, obviously, like using Poser or other type of model positioning uh, to put into this and do your reconstruction.
1: Yeah. So once it's in a 3D format, um, you know, having a program like 3D Studio Max, which which I tend to use a lot. Or you know, regardless if you're using like um, something from Leica like uh, Map three hundred and sixty, or if you're using Faro Zone three D, whatever it is, they'll be able to import all these models. Um, from different sources, which is really great. And so the fact that 3D models talk well together is super beneficial. So you can take a character model and you, know, you can rig it up to show trajectories or you can take a vehicle and show trajectories on a vehicle and then import the vehicle separately on the drone data, for example. So you can have the roadway and put a car back in with uh, trajectories. Um, so, yeah, there, there's definitely a lot of opportunities for doing uh, reconstruction work. And in fact, that's a lot of what we do. That's a lot of what I do. And uh, we've uh, like we've done a lot of work on uh, shooting cases, so especially officer involved shooting cases. So that's a big deal recently. So that has been super helpful. And, you know, I'm finding today that there are a lot more agencies that already have the data. So before I had to bounce around and travel to, you know, get my own data or go scan a scene or something like that. And nowadays it's like, Hey, do you got, do you got the data? Oh yeah. We got, we got some drone images and you know, we have a scanner or whatever. It's like, cool. So it made my life easier. Right. So, uh, uh, we're getting fed a lot of that data today, which before, you know, we had to go and obtain ourselves. So that, that's, that's a good sign. That's a, that's a really good sign that, uh, agencies are adopting these technologies.
0: So what would you say is the most common question? Like if, if I'm calling you, whether it's a, as an attorney or, or a, an agency, and obviously what you do is reconstruction, what's the most common question that I want answered?
1: That's, you know, there are different types of cases that we get. Uh, but I can tell you this, that almost every case that we do where we, we take you know, the pieces of a number of different things and create a reconstruction in 3D, you almost always learn something that was maybe difficult to visualize or understand otherwise. And sometimes it just makes you think about things that weren't uh, immediately apparent. And so kinds of things that people want, for example, it's like sometimes they'll call and say, hey, we want an animation. So they just call it an animation, right? Right. walk
0: through we want you to show us what happened
1: well when they say animation i'm not sure if they know what they mean so sometimes they mean they they kind of want a camera fly through kind of showing the scene sometimes it means they want people running around and doing all kinds of stuff like that so um we like i don't do a lot of the animated things where people start running around and and that sort of thing anymore because it it doesn't um uh i just find it 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 becomes a little bit of a battle to get into court it, it goes under a lot more scrutiny so for years now we've really been trying to focus more on the um, you know the accuracy you know bullet trajectories uh, bloodstain patterns um, the kinds of things where you can take this 3d data and then apply it to something and that's really the area of interest for me and that's where we've been doing a lot of research is you know the documentation is one side but then there's this whole other realm, which is now I've got the data, what kinds of analysis and what kinds of information can I extract from this data that can be super useful to the case? And so those are the kinds of things we work on.
0: So what would you say that, and I know you've done uh, a lot of research in in different areas. So uh, is there something that while you're going, and and I'm sure there is, uh, that as you receive some data, as you're working a case, that it's brought just your curiosity to answer a question like i I never thought of this before can can i figure this versus that or you know what's what's some topic that sort of oh by doing this i i wanted to learn more about something yeah um
1: and there's you know there's so many different things like so for example um well let me let me back up because when i first got into this i sort of saw the writing on the wall and i thought you know what I don't want to be the first one on the stand going, yeah, you know, I did this thing. And they're like, and who's and who's done this before?
0: No one. No one but me. I am exactly.
1: (laughs) So I figured, well, maybe I'll be the first one, but I don't want at least I want to have something published on it to show that I've tested it and it's been peer reviewed and people have, you know, criticized it or something. Right. So I can. So that's that's where a lot of the uh, research stuff started. And then through different cases that I've had, it's branched off into like different things because you're like, damn. And that's where a lot of people like yourself or other people that are that are doing casework are like, damn, you know, like this is this is something we've never seen before. Like, I wonder, like, has anybody tested it? And then they go in and they look in the literature and they're like, there's nothing here. Like, you know, what I mean, like it's a wide open space. And, you know, when I first started in this area, I thought, ah, police have
0: done it all. They know it all. They've, they've been doing this for that, years. That's what we want people to believe. You keep going with that. <laughs> that's, that's, that's working well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you
1: know, and then as I started getting deeper into it, I'm like, well, has anybody done this? And it's like, no. And you look around, it's like, well, there's very limited information. So I've done a lot of the research like that. Um, to answer your, your question, there's a case that I had once that was a like a bloodstain pattern case. It was a, a gunshot uh, spatter and misting and stuff like that and that really piqued my curiosity so um, i teach at the university of toronto in uh, mississauga it's the city beside toronto in the forensic science program so we get intern students regularly so we had four this year and one of them had a gunshot missing project and so you know we set up experiments and it's not necessarily 3d let's say but you know it's it's something where we're trying to look at what is the cause and the effect and variables and things like that that come into play another one had to do with cartridge case ejection patterns so um, if you look in the literature there's a few things on cartridge cases but not a lot certainly not in the ejection patterns and you'll be very hard pressed to find anything that looks at blind studies for cartridge case ejection patterns so i had a student this year we ran some tests we did some uh, cartridge case ejection patterns we used photogrammetry we used the laser scanner for the documentation but the analysis was a different a different aspect um forensic anthropology an area that i'm not you know a lot of the students that come through the university are and they sort of have an anthro biochem background right. which right. is not my background at all right so um but you know i get involved this year we had a, a case where Uh, case excuse me a project where a student was making cut marks on bone and we were increasing the weight on the blade of the knife and using different types of blades to look at the the type and depth of cut and the way we documented those cuts on bone was using a 3d microscope from a company called keyance so yeah all everything you said like you get ideas from cases you get ideas from all different places when it comes to research
0: now i know most the police training or i should say uh crime scene train that we've talked about when it comes to ejected cases is uh, and and just from working scenes um we have a decent distance but it, it we always sort of throw it out the window right depending on what it hit what it bounced off of yeah uh where it could have ended up you know um so um and i don't i don't know your research uh, on this but i mean was this different different calibers were there items that it would have bounced off me what were you finding was like the the area that we're looking in or or what was your what was your question and goal
1: right so obviously we have to start someplace and and I know and believe me everybody and their brother was telling me you know cartridge cases get kicked around and people step on them and people and I'm like I know I know but I've had more than one case where I know you know the cartridge cases fell in grass and they didn't get kicked around uh, I had one where it was in snow and I know that, you know, it, it didn't get you know, kicked or launched around because there were no footprints in that area or anything. Um, so there are situations and cases where it may be useful. So just to answer or to even get a sense of what kind of errors are we even talking about, our research focused on uh, flat concrete floor, like very smooth floor, so these things have a lot of room to sort of move around and bounce around. Um, And the assumption is that nobody, you know, sort of affected it. So what we did was uh, we used for this particular study, we used the same caliber and same ammunition. And we had multiple people fire a gun in a sort of a standard grip, you know, double handed grip shooting position and um, from different heights, too. So we'd have people kneel. We'd have people standing. And we had different heights of people. We had men. We had women. So Ultimately, we have, you know, hundreds of these fired shots and we document them all. And then we try to figure out, OK, what's the average um, direction and distance from the known shooter position? And that's the starting point. OK. Yeah. So then what we want to do is say, OK, let's assume I have a crime scene now. I've got I've got three cartridge cases and let's assume it's in the sand or dirt or somewhere where we didn't. Um, we didn't uh, kick it or, or whatever. So we, we were fairly comfortable with the, the cartridge cases are in their in their final resting position. What we were doing is um, we're we're looking at two scenarios. One is you have no idea where the shooter was firing. OK, so that's one scenario. Just you got three cartridge cases where was somewhere the shooter? somewhere somewhere. So you end up with this sort of like these rings like satellites kind of thing. The other one is where you know the direction of fire so you know that maybe there was a victim standing you know 20 feet away from the shooter or something like that you at least have a
0: bullet hole or something to work off of
1: yeah so now it is where along that path was that person standing so we're looking at those types of scenarios and um, we're learning we're learning a lot actually so the other thing too is for example we recorded where the cartridge case first impacts and okay. then the final rest position. So we're not just doing the final. We're like, where does it first hit? And then how far does it go? So we're finding, uh, I mean, we found cartridge cases, you know, as far as or more as, uh, you know, seven meters. It's like 20, you know, more than 20 feet. Right. So they can they can move. They can move.
0: That has been and our experience. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They,
1: they definitely go. They can definitely go far in. um you know, and then on average, you know, it's, you know, something on the order of about 12 feet. Now, here's the kicker. The shoot, we've had everybody standing in the same position and everything else firing these guns, but the person firing, even if they're holding in the same position whatever, and right. it's something you'll see, you get, you get, you know, the big guy with the big pipes, big arms, right. you know, and he's like, right. yeah, let me fire this thing. When you have somebody that's very sort of holding the gun very rigidly, their cartridge cases go flying. I mean, they go, they go, they go, It's just you can see it, like they just go flying way off. And then if you have somebody that's kind of, you know, noodle arms, you know, kind of thin, they fall right beside you. They just go bang, bang, they fall right beside. So um, the shooter has a lot to do. Like just one variable can affect, uh, you know, this kind of thing quite a bit. So um, it's a really interesting uh, project and we're continuing it on. I have another student this year, uh, this summer, and I'm hoping that uh, we'll be doing some more with different calibers, different people and different things to see what we get.
0: That that is interesting, and um, like I said, I, I know that it's um, something that we deal with, and uh, and many times it's I mean you're sitting there staring at one another, and it's like you know it's in this room. I mean we we know for a fact, you know there's there's not a nine millimeter revolver out there. It, the casing didn't go with them. It's it's somewhere here, yeah. you know, and, and of course I mean you. And I completely understand the, the the foundation and basic research that you know you're you're trying to find, but when you do enter the the couch and the TV and the coffee table and the it can bounce off this, it can go in this and whatever okay. um, you know. But certainly to have the answer of it can't be past this point, mm-hmm. right, is helpful. Yes, absolutely,
1: and. and- the other thing that I mean, part of the research was also to help establish uh, a method of testing. So, when I, I've been talking to different people around the world, actually, that you know will do ejection pattern testing. And what I found is that they don't do hundreds of shots, they do five, they'll do 10, they'll do six. Statistically, it's not a large sample size. And right. one of the reasons why they don't do that is because they got to measure every damn one, <laughs> so right. they don't want to do three hundred measurements. but so in our in our because I have a little bit of you know photogrammetry or whatever, we actually just use the GoPro to okay. record just to record. so from video and from establishing a known grid on the ground, we can fire thousands of shots and we can just use the video and take just pick off points in the video and we're able to get um, you know measurements down to like a quarter inch kind of thing to the, uh, to the cartridge cases. So having a means or a method of documenting the cartridge cases during the test, which is much easier, may give people, um, you know, forensic practitioners, uh, another tool, or may give them a little bit more incentive to test more shots or take more, more, uh, cartridge case measure measurements on the ground.
0: So where do you see, I mean, obviously just in, in the time of, Uh, of our careers, the advancements that we've seen, Uh, what do you see next? What do you see being, uh, whether it's just something we have that's enhanced or something that's coming up, what do you see as next beneficial to what you're doing that's not developed yet, but you see it coming?
1: Uh, Right here, right there. So that's the iPhone 12. And right at the very bottom here, one of these, it's, there's a lidar sensor there. So that little dark thing. I saw something
0: on that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So very interesting. So the it's something that I've been doing some testing on, and I've placed a couple of videos online looking at accuracy and how it might be able to be used. So um, the lidar that's built into this thing, it's incredible because it's now in a. A device that everybody typically has, right? right. So that's cool, right. and it's you know I don't know what an iPhone costs now. It's you know a thousand bucks or something, whatever it might be.
0: Yeah, still expensive, but um, it's still you know. expensive. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> exactly. But when um, you're talking
0: about now, we're talking personal, individual. But when you're talking about a government entity uh, versus buying a you know multi-million or multi-thousand-dollar laser scanner, mm-hmm. you know versus An iphone that many of them are issuing due to uh things like evidence.com just one that i think of but where they're able to take video take photos on a scene upload that to their evidence repository so that's uh, a a very likely tool that could be issued yeah Yeah. uh, in the field so what are you finding on its accuracy uh this one
1: here it's uh you know a few centimeters so for example i did a vehicle And when I did the vehicle, I think I was on the order of like, you know, uh, let's say about three inches, something like that. You know, once you, once you, so what happens is if you just, if you just use the raw data that comes out of it and then measure it, then it's kind of horrible. It doesn't actually work all that great. But some companies, like there's a company that um, I'm testing their software or their app and it's called uh, EveryPoint. It's free. So anybody can try it. Um, And what I'm finding is this is what's really cool you asked about what's coming in the future. It's sensor fusion. So, you know, taking the lidar sensor and then taking photogrammetry and they're combining it together. So, you know, when photogrammetry fails, the LIDAR kinda kicks in. And when the LIDAR kind of fails, the photogrammetry kicks in. So there's there's or at least they help each other. They're working together. And so you can do things and the quality of the data that they're getting is like really cool. So it's not quite there yet. I don't want to give people a false impression um, the, the models look cool, like we talked about before, right. the cool factor. Um, but they need to implement a few more little things which can uh, help people understand, especially in forensics. The most important thing that I always say to people is, it's not the answer; it's the error. You have to understand the error, right? right. So.
0: Well, it's like um, you said, I mean, the, it it's a cool thing and it's coming, but you said you were getting, what, three centimeters or three oh, inches? or? inches, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, so, when, when you're talking about that for scientific measurement, that's not going to work.
1: Yeah, right? I mean, you know, for accident reconstruction people, you know, if they want to, you know, take a quick scan of a car because they've got their phone with them or something, I mean, that's okay. I mean, I can see that, you know, it might be all right. But what I do, would I hang my head on a bullet? trajectory analysis right now? Probably not. You know, I mean, it's not ready yet. But maybe it'll move in that direction. Maybe, you know, there are some things that they can implement. We're still at a very early stage. It's the first release of the LiDAR on the phone. And I'm sure, you know, other companies are probably going to start getting competitive or maybe they'll start releasing some smaller sensors that are more accurate. Who knows? We'll see what happens. But that's the sensor fusion thing I think we're going to see more of and more mobile. A lot more mobile people are really like thinking about you know if i can walk around with this device and just kind of capture a crime scene like just you know you were talking about like putting the house together or whatever before right so what if you could just walk through the house and something is just you know tying it all together for you that's that's kind of the holy grail of uh of scanning but
0: again well not quite there. and i've i've seen that sort of right um so i know at acer uh, and I'll I'll give them a free plug here. It was Faro was there, and they had their handheld that allowed you just that to to walk around, walk through, had your positioning, and to blend those together. And and I am curious as far I mean obviously it's all proprietary. They're not going to share their information, but obviously reverse engineering and feeding off of others of taking what we now see from like, um, Pharaoh and whether we start seeing it on mobile type devices, mm-hmm. uh, putting, I think another was using, uh, GPS, uh, along yes. with it, uh, yes. to try to, so you could, like I said, in the past you had the scanner and you had to have either targets or something that you had tied. Now it's just GPS point of, we know where this was and we know where you took it to. So Now we're going to tie those together.
1: Yeah, there's uh, there's so aligning the scans together is a term that people will often hear. It's called registration. So it's a fancy word for aligning these two scans together. And so having points. So, you know, if I have if I have a scan here and I have a scan here and I'm like, well, these points are the same. These points are the same. These points are the same. I can take these two scans and say, oh, they, they fit like this and all the points come together. But another way to do it, um, a lot of people know it as called cloud-to-cloud registration. So the point cloud is just the collection of all the points that the laser scanner collects. And so you take one cloud and you take the other cloud. And they, they get put together based on their similarity, so the the, the, the overlapping geometry that's similar it can kind of put the two together and then it can kind of it kind of massages them in and looks for the least amount of error and when it finds that point where you know one they're both positioned really really tight it says hey i think they're registered together and so you don't need targets uh when you have good geometry um that fails though when for example let's say we're we're in the middle of a sandy wide open desert area there's nothing around all you have is just a flat sandy ground well if i scan you know 500 feet that way it looks exactly the same as right. 500 feet that way so then it then it breaks down and you definitely need targets um the other uh place that targets are really hopeful are when you get a, a body that's in a, a like a forest or something like that because there's so much stuff around you that when you move the scanner you know you move the scanner 10 feet And all of a sudden you're through bushes and you're through all kinds of things that it can't find anything that was similar to what what was in the previous position. So targets are very helpful there too.
0: So now just to give a comparison of, of, and you're talking about error. So the error of the iPhone, obviously, as you said, using it for accident reconstruction probably would work, right? When we start measuring millimeters of... A uh, blood stain and shooting reconstruction—that's not going to be helpful yet. So, what error rate are we dealing with? With I'll just call it the uh, the pro models, right? I mean, so if you're dealing with your um, terrestrial scanners, what's that versus like a drone on photogrammetry? So,
1: um, when we're talking about something like a Leica or a Ferro scanner, or ZNF scanner, like those, you know, professional, you know, right. high grade equipment. And you're, you're you're down to an accuracy level in and around one to two millimeters or so something around that area and obviously it depends on the type of instrument but but you know like the, the Faro s350 model that i use is down at about you know one they say one millimeter i usually say one to two millimeters it's around that ballpark that's certainly sufficient for you know bloodstain pattern analysis and for um the the uh the shooting like bullet, reconstruction. yeah bullet right. trajectories and things like that um and that, yeah. Um, when you're talking about a drone, a lot depends on, you know, how high you're flying, the resolution of your camera. and But let's say, you know, if you're flying something on the, at let's say you're at, uh, you know, 120 feet off the ground and you want to map out an area that's, you know, 400 feet or 500 feet. It's a roadway or something like that. Um, a lot of people overstate their accuracy claims with, with photogrammetry. So if you're using control points, okay, so GPS and high accuracy control points, you can get down to about a centimeter or two, okay, okay somewhere in the ballpark. If you're not using any control and you're just flying, you will have, you know, look at it this way, 90% of your points are, are gonna fall about under five centimeters if you do it properly, okay? Under five centimeters is like two and a half inches or so, a couple of inches, let's say. So. Um, you know, and it also depends where and what you're measuring. So if you think about, you know, a vehicle crash or something that's spread out over, you know, a hundred meters, especially when it's a high speed crash, right. a couple of I- a couple of inches is not going to make any difference at all to your calculations. So not a big deal. Um, you know, but when you're doing the more sensitive stuff, like for example, a suspect height analysis, so you're taking CCTV images and you want to couple it, you want to minimize your error as much as possible when you're doing, uh, the trajectories and then the blood pattern analysis, you definitely also want to minimize your error. So in that case, um, I typically don't rely on photogrammetry. I usually go with the laser scanner. Uh, it's It's a probably the better instrument um, in in those types of cases.
0: I mean, certainly, we've seen an in officer involved shootings, and it's most common one that I guess we would probably have questions of and and trying to reconstruct with video uh, the distance um, you know between the suspect, between the officer, you know, because obviously the question always comes up: Are there, was there another option, right? How right. far away were they, uh and dealing with? And I've seen, matter of fact, I think they had a reconstruction at Acer where uh, they were showing the difference between sound traveling the bullet and and trying to use right. video uh, to put all those things together. So uh, again, I think these are more tools to use, but as you said, sometimes it being off by too much changes the story in a direction that um, uh, obviously doesn't answer the question we're going for. Right. And that's to to find out, you know, was there another option?
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like I always say, I I always look at try to understand the error because, you know, a lot of times, you know, again, like, you know, sometimes, you know, if you're just doing a crime scene drawing and you want to give people an idea of the space, or something sure. like that. Right where
0: things were as we talked yeah, about this
1: exactly so you're off by an inch or two like you know it's it's not important it's not going to make or break the case or anything so in that you know in those situations you know it's okay to you know maybe photogrammetry or use a different type of technology you know maybe your phone or whatever it might be but you know when you really have to get down to it um having a good handle on the air and what kind of errors you can expect is super important to put it into context you know so if you've got you know, you've got a suspect and, you know, the, the you know, one guy is, uh, you know, he's, he's 6'5". The guy, you know, they think the guy is 6'5", in the video, but then, you know, the suspect you got is, you know, 5'8", right? There's a huge disparity between right. there. So if it's plus or minus an inch on your calculation, you know, you can definitely exclude somebody there. But now what happens is, you know, if one person is 5'10", and one, one person is, you know, 6'1", and you've got four inches of error, plus or minus during your, well, they overlap now, so you can't say as much about it. So understanding the error and the range of error is, is super important in these types of cases.
0: So, uh, you know, as we wrap up, uh, one thing I'd really like to do, I know we've talked about a lot of different, uh, software that you're using and such. And, uh, if you don't mind sharing some of those links to the different ways that people can get to them and stuff, we'll, we'll post that, uh, on the website. We'll post that with, uh, with the video and such. Um, so you're obviously working on the, uh, the ejected cartridge casing. So what's another project that, uh, that we see coming that's, uh, I guess of interest that you're starting or working on?
1: Uh, the one, probably the biggest one for me last year was the, uh, cast off pattern analysis. So, um, I was, uh, I looked at, I looked at cast off patterns. And there wasn't a lot of work uh, in that particular area. So everybody knows, like a lot of people know in this area, like an impact pattern. And then you do an area of origin analysis to determine more or less where the impact came from. But then I started thinking about cast off patterns. And, you know, if you have, you know, this sort of linear uh, series of bloodstains that are projected on a wall or something or a floor or ceiling, um, what can you say about it? you know and it's kind of intuitive you see this kind of line that goes down the wall right You're like well you know it kind of came from here right so um i found that a lot of people weren't doing anything with the data they were taking photos and said well you know it's, it's cast off pattern and that was it so i was more interested in actually doing something with the data and so i uh was using Zone 3d software that has area of origin built in and i kind of repurposed it so i said well let me let me do that on a cast off pattern and see what i can find so i did a bunch of trials where uh, i was in the, the netherlands so there was a company in the netherlands that was helping me and so we put like these motion tracking trackers on people's bodies and then on a a dowel rod that was dipped in blood and then we'd swing it at a wall and it was uh you know just your hand and it was very natural it was a human created motion path And in fact, that's what we're doing uh, now. So I published a paper last year that says, uh, I call it the path volume envelope. And what it is is a way of doing an analysis on a cast-off pattern. And I'm using a laser scanner and software and everything. And it gives you a box, let's call it. And inside of this box is the motion path of the object. So if I have blood on the end of a rod and and I swing it, I've got this box now that kind of encloses somewhere in that box is the path of motion that caused these bloodstains to be projected on a uh, wall or, or, surface, whatever it might be. So that's the exciting one for me. I was really, I was really, um, uh, I was really excited about it. I thought it was kind of cool cause there was no other analysis like that. And so no, it, really
0: it, it answers yeah. a lot of questions on investigation, uh, trying yeah. to, to determine cause obviously we're, we're trying to reconstruct, You know, again, what happened and where people were, what they were doing, and and it all plays a a huge factor when we try to reconstruct these things. Uh, Obviously, for the investigators, uh, also for the detectives, and uh, certainly um, by the time we get to court, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so hopefully it works out. We're doing some more work in that area, and I uh, hope— Hope
0: to keep going. <laughs> yeah, and we can't wait to see uh, what you have. So, you know, as we uh, wrap up, Eugene, thank you so much um, just for your knowledge, experience, and and bringing this stuff to light. And we can't wait to see what you do. And and certainly want to come back and see some of your your future work as you do it. Uh, for listeners out there, if uh, there's a topic you'd like to hear about, there's a question you have for us. Uh, if you would like to sponsor the show or if you know a topic or someone would like to be on the show, contact me, Dan, at scenetoday.com, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it.